in order to form a more perfect union, we do what? We establish justice. Without justice, there is no union. All other events are inferior to the concept of American justice. The year was 1936. A behemoth of a sports stadium is completed. Like an earth-anchored Death Star, this gargantuan compound would sweep the galaxy clean of any who dared resist its omnipotence. Larger than the University of Michigan Big House in Ann Arbor, a proud national leader ordered its construction aided by media groups, filmmakers, and other ambitious few. The vision was to broadcast the Olympic Games to the world. A neighboring village would house world athletes in the most exquisite, state-of-the-art facilities. Amazed by the luxury, the occupants would refer to this place as a paradise. Jesse Owens was the grandson of a slave. This African-American Big Ten champion was still aware of his context. He expected to be placed in a black-only facility. To his amazement and refreshment, the United States Olympic team would be treated as equals in this regard, and Jesse was given the same privileges in this paradise. Uh, the same thing with uh, with Qatar and, and uh, Morocco, some some nations that that uh, uh, are largely Islamic, um, and the ability to uh, to go into a nation, uh, and, and if you look at the evening news, you think, well, this is how these people must be, and then you go there, and despite stark differences in background and, and belief systems, um, there is still a shared humanity in terms of an ability to communicate, to dialogue, to talk, to agree. And it's the beginning of how you bring people together. So uh, I encourage opportunities for international engagement. Um, we looked at programs where we were working with uh, uh, other nations, attorneys general or prosecutors. Uh, uh, that was some of the official uh, rationale behind the visits. But the human side of those visits was, was very important. Um, you mentioned um, 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 my own father. And in the context of the, uh, the civil rights movement, I'll tell you that my father, whose name I share, I'm Curtis Jr., uh, so I have my dad's name. Um, my father was a uh, civil servant. He was a postman. And uh, that we have lots of postmen today, but when my dad was a postman, he was the first black postman in um, um, the Elkhart Post Office. Um, he was a first of a lot of things. Um, and he was also the head of the NAACP locally for about 12 years. Uh, my father uh, also uh, integrated uh, Elkhart. He was the uh, first black to... Uh, build a house across the tracks, as it were, into a all-white neighborhood. Um, in fact, uh, that home is still in our family, but that was uh, a few years before I was born. He built a house, and an interesting story about him building his house, and I've told this on many occasions. Um, the folks in the neighborhood found out that my father had bought the land, and they called him to a meeting with an offer to buy him out. Really? Made it very clear that under no circumstances were he or his family welcome in that neighborhood oh my gosh and my father at the time was actually 
uh, trying to decide between two pieces of property. One, um, this property uh, that he was called to the meeting about, and another on the south side of town uh, that he was actually more favorable to consider for building. But he decided during the meeting that he was uh, requested to sell his land, that he was going to build his house right on that spot. And I don't think people understand the courage that it would have taken to, in the very face of that type of opposition. What to, year was this? I mean, uh, this would have been 1956, 58, okay. in, that, in that era. Yeah. Um, for him to build that house, knowing full well that everybody around him, or at least most of the people around him, didn't want him there and were actively engaged in making sure he didn't come, and then to bring his wife and his, at, the, at that time, four young children um, to that home, and then to keep them safe. Um, yeah. A few years later, after I was born, our home was bombed. Uh, someone threw a Molotov cocktail on our house. It did not explode. It malfunctioned. Uh, but my father's reaction to that was he went out that day and bought a shotgun. And he brought the shotgun home. He showed it to the kids. And it's one of my earliest memories. I can remember my dad telling us to stay away from it. He showed us where it would, where it would be. He put it behind the door of his bedroom uh, where it was uh, until just about the day he died. And that gun represented my father's message to his family that we are going to stand our ground and we're going to defend our home against wow. whatever comes. Wow. And, and, uh, these were th- and this was this was a man who at that time would have been in his uh, late thirties. Uh, so, you know, that's my personal hero. But there there are scores and scores and scores of stories like that uh, that people don't see. Many people knew my father moving forward. He became a successful insurance agent. He was on the school board. He did lots of things, but many people didn't know that he had to fight for his home. Well, his uh, home for his for his home, and he had to defend his family and protect his family. Federal situation. employee, by the federal way, federal employee, uh, head of the NAACP, and and so we we learn from that. And 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 going back to a comment I made earlier, uh, I spent a lot of time with my father. Um, my father never, never said a foul thing about the United States of America. He said foul things about people who degraded the value of the United States of America or misrepresented the United States of America or, or attacked people within America, but not America itself because he always recognized that America was a higher ideal than anything else. That, that it was, it was, it was the quest for the more perfect union. My, my dad got that. And, and if we focus on that quest for the more perfect union, we recognize that there are flaws in how things operate. There are flaws in how people treat each other. And we have the opportunity to move beyond that. Uh, But we have to understand the background before we get there. The 1936 Olympic Games, a refreshing escape from the misery of World War I and the Great Depression. But would this venue exhibit the values of world peace and brotherhood? Just a year prior, certain groups were stripped of citizenship, their businesses pillaged. The life they built over years instantly ripped away. A socialist workers' party gained some startling momentum. A workers' party, the party of the people. A German Jew by the name of Gretel Bergman was barred entrance to the games 
despite her record-breaking athletic feats. Even dignified German officials were removed from their posts or demoted for having associations incompatible with the party doctrine. January 30th, 1933. The charismatic leader is named Chancellor, and the first concentration camp is open for business. Personal freedoms are suppressed, and the Nazi party imprisons all their political rivals. By August of 1936, construction of the Death Star was completed. Hitler's games would go forth. He had his champions ready to go, and he hoped the world would watch them obliterate the smaller stars. That is some very difficult background. I could not imagine feeling like my own parcel of land was enemy territory. I mean, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, and Grandpa sold properties off to his children. We lived all together on the same road. I mean, we were enemy territory, a family feud, right? But not quite the same thing as what you guys went through in Elkhart. We can't really appreciate that. Elkhart, Indiana, 1950s, was not, it was not friendly to the black man, uh, regardless of your education or well, income. And, and we have to understand that because it, it's, it's certain elements within Elkhart. I mean, we have to be clear. Uh, every community has certain elements. So I wouldn't say that Elkhart itself wasn't friendly. There were certain elements within yeah. Elkhart or within any community because there's also positive elements in those in those same communities mm-hmm. that, I mean, for example, there's the, there's the individual who sold my father the land in the first place. Oh, great example. Uh, yeah. so, so there's someone who didn't say, I'm not going to sell my land to this black man. Mm-hmm. This is someone who, who saw my father as someone who had money to pay for his property. Yeah. Um, so we, we have to be careful about how we characterize. And, and uh, I try to be very careful about this because I, I want to make sure that we place the burden where the burden needs to be placed yeah. and, and provide enough room to be able to maneuver into a, a, into a coexistence. Right. So this, this enemy territory, um, coexistence, it's really fuzzy. You know, the Los Angeles riots, one could easily turn on the TV and say, Los Angeles is a racist community. Right. There couldn't be a more diverse community on, in this great country. Um, <laughs> back to the Westbrooks, speaking of enemy territory, um, you know, Russell Westbrook didn't play for the Clippers, but I always felt the Clippers had a run. Now, it was Paul George, or it was Chris Paul, who I think was the first rookie, one of the first rookies to score a triple-double. And it was uh, Chris Paul who nearly got that title with the Clippers. And I really feel in my bones that if they would have put aside that that scandal with the owner, they would have achieved it. They had they had you know uh, such a great team: Blake Griffin, you know Jamal Crawford, um, that big center. What's his name? I mean, he's just incredible. So why couldn't they get over that hump? And I sometimes wonder if it wasn't they just they didn't survive the playoffs because they went back to the civil rights. They they disconnected from the goal and went back to these lesser priorities. And so this owner said something, you know, unkosher to his girlfriend, and it was to the effect of, you know, stop hanging out with these black guys. You know, you can 
you can date who you want, but don't bring them over here type thing. Red flag scandal. Was that a season-ending scandal? And they come out with the shirts, and they come in. Come on, Chris, Paul, you had it in you, my friend. You should have. So, so Russell Westbrook, I mean, he's a triple-double king. I don't think you could. Who's going to get more than than Russell Westbrook? He, but enemy territory. Okay, so he went to the Olympics in 2012, and he won gold medals, right? He went to the 2010 FIBA World Championship. Okay, so he's on enemy ground, right? You're in a stadium packed with foreigners who just don't want you to win. Oh, that's so emotionally distressing. Okay, that's the worst of it. Or the owner doesn't like you, but you're cashing his $20, $30 million checks for crying out loud. Jump back to the 1940s. Here's Shelby Westbrook, enemy territory. Okay, his wingman goes down, crashes into a building, right? This ain't no, this no comparison, you know, just because Kevin Durant twisted his ankle and was out for a few games, or, you know, Westbrook broke his hand. This is not the same apples to apples. So teammate goes down, or a, your, your pilot loses his life. And now you are maybe the godfather to these children. Uh, enemy territory. Plane went down. And uh, now he's trapped in Yugoslavia, you know, in combat. Who wants to be trapped in Yugoslavia, a black man in 1940? That, not, that, not too many places to hide. Yeah, you're a fish out of water. <laughs> you, know, you talk about being a fish out of water. Black man in Elkhart, 1950s. Try being a... A fighter pilot, World War II, Yugoslavia. That's real awfully close to uh, to the Third Reich. I, I just feel like I'd want to get an evac immediately. Berlin, the capital of a rising new world order. Hitler, the messiah of the Third Reich. With biblical accuracy, the monomaniac declared a 1,000-year millennial reign of peace on earth. And what better way to usher them in than a mighty stadium for the Aryan gods? What better way to fool the world than to transform the goodness of human competition into political theater, promoting the largest propaganda operation of all time? A hundred thousand Germans all cheering. Hell Hitler. Back in America, many gathered routinely to protest the 11th modern Olympic Games being hosted around such outrageous conditions. On October 20th, 1935, America, alongside leaders of sport, calls for an Olympic boycott, quote, the Olympic Charter considers that there should be an absolute equality of races and beliefs in the domain of sport. It is the direct antithesis to the ideology of Nazis that makes racial inequality the cornerstone of their beliefs. So we, our culture is whacked. It is. We, it is. Our culture, uh, our culture is whacked. We don't have a deep appreciation for who, we've, who we have been where we've come from, and it's important to do so, not so much to look back and look in the rearview mirror, but to understand the pitfalls of where we've been so we can avoid them moving forward. And, and, we, and we've gotten into a, a weird sort of softness. You know, um, 
for the Shelby Westbrooks, for the Jesse Owenses, for the for the Jackie Robinsons, for for the my father, for for all those who came before us and what they went through, um, there was a certain um, uh, there was a certain strength that that had to be developed uh, for them to continue to persevere. Well, part of what happens in a culture is you 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 want the succeeding cultures to not have to experience the pitfalls and burdens of the current culture or the or previous culture. And so uh, my father, for example, his had a simple wish. He wanted his kids to have a little bit better than he had. And as each generation has a little bit better, they they don't have to have as much suffering. And I'm not suggesting that, that suffering is required, but the appreciation that comes from having suffered, winning after suffering is a whole lot different than winning having not suffered at all. And we're seeing that playing out all over the nation. Um, part of, uh, I, I, I read something recently uh, from a formal, uh, I believe a naval officer who was talking about the makeup of, of um, military attitude in America versus military attitude in other nations um, because many in our military have had a soft upbringing have not uh, have not gone without meals have not gone uh, without a home without uh, you know not understanding what they're fighting for fighting for uh, veterans benefits versus fighting for survival and and when you're doing something because you're fighting for your very survival that's different than when you're fighting for uh, a medal or an accolade um, and that, and I think that's a that's a critical piece of the culture that we're in now so many youngsters are out there protesting for the sake of protesting to sort of relive what it must have been like in 1968 or 1969. Yet they're living at home, they're driving their parents' cars, they don't have real burdens, but they're protesting on behalf of other people. Right. And it's almost like a game, uh, like it's 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 like a you know like a weekend thing where we're going to go protest. That's not what protests were like. Uh, back in the 1940s, 1950s, when you protested then, you took your life in your own hands. Black, white, whoever. If you went into Mississippi mm. um, and you were on the Freedom Rides, uh, you could be lily white. But if you were down there assisting and representing the interest of, of blacks in Mississippi, you were marked for death. And that was a real sacrifice. So, the, so... The, the, the modern culture of protest doesn't always measure up. What we saw last summer, we saw uh, cities burning and people looting. And, and one of the concerns I had as a, as a uh, uh, former law enforcement official, I was very discouraged to see all over the country law enforcement lined up and clearly being told to hold back or stand down and allow looting and burning to happen. Um, all in the name of protest. There's a big difference between protest, which is fundamental to the rights of American citizens, and rioting and insurrections. And um, this is this is what we've come to, where where we have uh, so many, um, uh, and I would say more liberally minded people who suggest that it's okay to. Uh, to claim that that rioting and and looting stores is a is some kind of form of appropriate protest. Civil disobedience Civil is disobedience. what they call it. 
No, like, I, I think it's constructive, and it's not constructive at all. When you looked at the when you looked at the the civil disobedience of the 1950s and 1960s, the sit-ins, um, they were peaceful. They were they were uh, you sat there, um, and you may not have disobeyed an order that you believed to be uh, unrighteous, but you were arrested without incident, um, and without yeah. violence. And if there was violence, the violence came about on the hands of the police or the, uh, the, uh, the authorities that were engaged in the anti-action. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's missing today. And, and we have to, we have to be, we have to appreciate our ability to protest. Um, I firmly, I, there's lots of things that I don't agree with when I see protests that occur, but I stand behind the, the absolute right for someone to peaceably assemble and protest. The protests were effective. These concerted efforts could not be ignored if Hitler's games were to commence. So the party cleaned up their act on the surface. Before visitors poured in, all anti-Semitic signage was removed. The tyrannical Nuremberg laws were suspended for those two weeks. Jesse Owens arrived in a utopia that would soon perpetrate the most tragic events in wartime history. It's sacred. Um, it is. Yeah. And I also believe that if someone abuses that and, and crosses the line into violent behavior uh, and anarchy, that that needs to be addressed as well. Yes, all those things are so... You could talk at length at those, but I'd like to give one example. Um you talk about just the, the youth and their desire for this feeling of importance and to relive the past. Let me give you this example from yesterday. I, I went over to, uh, to get a haircut. And, uh, and while I waited for the appointment, I, I walked into the GameStop with my four-year-old. And as we're browsing the counters, um, a young man comes in with his girlfriend. And to his dismay... Upon finding no PlayStation 4 remotes, this individual proceeded to drop obscenities, at least 10 of them. And I thought, okay, I've been young. I've been upset. Heck, I probably cussed as much as he did today getting my printer to unjam. But I tell you what, it's thinking that a PlayStation 4 remote is is more important than a four-year-old's you know, vocabulary or example. It's so, it broke my heart and I, I felt bad, but that's the example. We don't know the difference between, um, the, in in biblical terms, the holy and the unholy, the, um, the sacred and, uh, the things that are not sacred. Sports and video games, those are fine and dandy, but what good is that if we don't have a city? In the 60s, a black man wants to eat a sandwich and patronize a white business. And that's revenue. And he's denied that right. He may be arrested to exercise that right. Today, 2020, Fort Wayne, Indiana, a chair goes through the window of the Jimmy John's sandwich shop. And, and for what? And for what? And in that little dispute, a, an officer fired a, a tear canister, and it hit a kid in the eye. Now, whether he was trained 
or not trained, whether he meant to hit him in the eye or not. This Caucasian uh, renegade lost the vision in his eye. Was that worth it? For what? What did you gain? What did you risk to gain or lose in that moment? And now why is there outcry against a, a law enforcement officer who is asked to dispel this crowd? I don't know the difference between a tear gas canister device and, you know, some of their other... Well, you'd rather, you'd rather someone fire a tear, tear gas canister at you than a thirty-eight caliber. I mean, there, there, there's a prioritization. It's, it's, it's awfully interesting because I've, I've been asked the question on many occasions, um, uh, why did the officer, uh, why didn't the officer wing him? Why didn't the officer shoot him in the leg? And I've had to explain to some pretty intelligent people, that's not how it works. This is not an episode of Gunsmoke starring Matt Dillon <laughs> or, or James Ironess playing Matt Dillon. Um, you know, and, and, and if any of your audience members remember, uh, Gunsmoke used to come on at 7 o'clock p.m. on Monday evenings. I used to watch it with my dad almost every Monday. It was his favorite show. And uh, Matt Dillon, when he would square off with the bad guy, because he was the virtuous guy wearing the white hat, he never shot first. The bad guy always drew first, and the virtuous Matt Dillon would wait until that first move, pull his gun out second, but always because he was you know, virtue was on his side, he always got the bad guy. And we get conditioned ridiculously to believe that that's the way real life works. Well, it doesn't work that way. You don't wait for a you don't you don't engage in a gun battle and wait for the other guy to shoot first. So what I've explained to people is police officer training, as good as it is does not train you for a real-life situation where adrenaline takes over and you have to make split-second life-and-death decisions. You can only train so much for that situation. And, um, and the reality is that uh, we give these individuals who, who serve us as police officers, uh, we give them a gun and a badge and the authority to protect us. And within that authority to protect us, we ask them to sacrifice their lives if necessary, to do so. Now, in exchange for that, we need to give them something. We need to give them some latitude. That doesn't mean that they can't break the law, but it certainly gives room for legitimate mistakes, reasonable mistakes. Absolutely. They happen all the time. You can't be an effective police officer and protect your community unless you have the courage to run into the situation, to run towards the danger. And when you have the courage or the edge that it takes to run toward the danger, you have to be prepared for what happens. And in that preparation time, mistakes will happen. Our job, whether it's, a, it's me as a prosecutor or a citizen through a grand jury or a citizen through public opinion, is to slope the process down and appreciate what that officer has to go through and make a distinction between um, reasonable mistakes and criminal behavior. And mm. we've gone far, far, far Reasonable mistakes away from that. Versus so you go to work every day. The other 99% of people go to a job and they can make mistakes. Yes. They can drop the ball, make accounting errors. They can, at times, throw a chair on the hardwood. Yes. But not if you're a police officer. Now you are held to a, a standard that's so impeccably it's impossible. impossible. It's impossible. And so... I mean, if that's important. To if know. you're driving, if you're a police officer and you pull a car over at two o'clock in the morning, 
who's driving the car. How do you know if it's a 90-year-old grandmother or if it's the guy who just stole, uh, just robbed the 7-Eleven? Now, how you approach that car makes a difference. If you approach that car like it's being driven by the 90-year-old grandmother who needs help and it's the 7-Eleven robber, you've got a problem. You could... You could not go home that So day. if I'm training a police officer, I'm telling that police officer, until you've been able to ascertain that it's not a dangerous situation, you have to approach every situation as if it was a danger to your life. So you may approach it with a bit of an attitude. You may approach it with your hand near your gun because you don't know if a gun's going to be met with you on the other side. And the difference, that's the difference between going home that night or that morning and not going home. That's the difference in terms of doing the job properly. And you're seeing right now, in real time across this nation, you're seeing the numbers of police officers going down. Uh, the hiring pools were already going down, people who don't want to become police officers. Um, not only that, the, the pool of, of who's acceptable to be a police officer had been shrinking anyway. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you're going to be left with people who would not have ordinarily qualified to be police officers. In other words, people who've not been properly screened to have the right mental attitude to carry a badge and carry a gun. If you didn't like them in the 60s. Wait till you get, wait, wait till you see what you're about to get. And, oh, wow. And and that's the that's the problem that the left wow. doesn't seem to understand. When they start talking about defunding the police, uh, it looked like the, like the little silly experiment up in Seattle uh, where they're going to, you know, they're going to take over uh, a part of the community and be a police-free zone well, what's the first thing they needed to do? They needed to restore order in their own police-free zone because they lost order. Any, any organization, anytime someone takes over anything, the first thing they have to do is establish order. If you don't establish order, you've got nothing. And uh, we in this country, um, this is a nation based on law and order. Um, you and I are proponents of freedom. And in our quest for freedom, we don't want to see excessive rules, excessive laws. We recognize, though, that we need some laws. Why do we need some laws? Look at your freedom as if it's a freight train going down the track south. My freedom is a freight train going up those same tracks north. What's about to happen? My freedom is about to collide with your freedom. Mm -hmm. Where does the law come in? The law is a switch station. The law is a switch station between your train and my train that switches at the last possible moment for the least mm -hmm. amount of movement in order to allow your freedom to continue down the track, my freedom to continue down the track, but to avoid hitting each other. That's what the law is supposed to be. It's supposed to liberate it. Liberty is supposed to be the end of the law. There's no law. There's no liberty. Yes. You can't have. So liberty, I, in my manuscript, I describe liberty as the intersection of law and order. And I like your analogy. It's the it's the switch station between this terrible train competing wreck. interest. I mean, yeah. I mean, the law is all about competing interests. Mm. And and uh, someone sometimes I'll, uh, I'll have someone say, "Well, that's what the law is. The law is such." And I said, "Well, don't get so caught up in what the law is because you do recognize that there are different ways to interpret the same law. That's called lawyering. If you've got an issue that you say, "Well, this is the law," well, what happens? You've got one side that says. This is how to interpret it. And another side that says that's how to interpret it. And we have a judge in the middle or a jury in the middle to make that decision ultimately. Mm -hmm. So this thing about the laws on my side, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It, it's awfully funny that the, the left and the right have a tendency to 
think the Constitution belongs to them. Right. Well, the Constitution, the Constitution belongs to us, and what we try to do is properly interpret its original meaning to give us understanding of that meaning, and that's where we get into disputes. And the idea is to work through those disputes in a civil manner uh, to properly interpret the Constitution. We see this in, in, the, in the quest. Uh, you and I are both uh, uh, pro-life. We believe firmly that the constitutional groundwork supports our position, right? Correct. Um, our opponents think the Constitution supports theirs. And isn't that the I mean, that's just... That, but that's, the mystery of it all? But that's, but that's what happens. They I mean, truly believe. They, they believe the Constitution supports them. So uh, we have the, uh, religious mm. liberty, for example. We, we read what, what the Constitution says about religious liberty. Uh, our liberal opponents read it differently. And, and our whole mechanism is to try to understand some type of logical way of bringing these issues together. And, and sometimes you can't do it. It's just, uh, you, I mean, in the area of abortion, it's the ultimate conflict between um, the, 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 the right of one's personal autonomy versus the right of another's very existence and the, the correlationship between those. And it, it's, it's one of the most unique disputes possible because of the connection between the host mother and the dependent child. And whose right is paramount? Well, we have a major dispute about whose right is paramount. You can't exclusively support the one without exclusively denying the other. So what the Supreme Court did, rightfully or wrongfully, back in 1973, um, I won't say they split the baby. That would be a bad... A bad uh, they, they, they split the issue and, and tried to make both sides win. Well, that's a tough, that's a, that's a tough issue to put on us, but but we can see how the law works in that way. And that precedent has ruined it for 51 years. And uh, the average American thinking the precedent is law, they are profoundly mistaken. We have all kinds of precedent for life. For instance, if I walk over to a Planned Parenthood, you've probably heard this, with, a, with your dad's shotgun, you know, the family heirloom, and a pregnant woman is approaching the gates, the gates of hell. She's got twins. And she's going to go remove these eight-month-old twins through a C-section. I mean, just whatever, most barbaric possible abortion. And that's her intent. And she has recorded evidence of that intent. And say it's legal in that state. You know where I'm going with this. And I end her life with such shotgun because I'm a John Brown abolitionist. And I'm trying to get shock effect into culture and say this don't do it here, or you'll be another shotgun casualty. Right there, the laws convict me, if I'm correct, of a triple homicide. Is that what you'd call legal precedent that would support the life cause? I don't know. I, don't, I, I think one of the things that we have to recognize is, is no matter how we feel or what we feel about an issue, um, it, doesn't, it, it, it may not be the basis for doing or should not be the basis for taking uh, further illegal action. So, uh, in other words, does the ends justify the means? And in, in my view, no. So it's a hypothetical legal argument. It might be hypothetical, but yeah. that's a serve. Uh, the real the, the real problem with with Roe v. Wade um, really was the court taking a position that it was an issue that didn't belong at the state level, uh, that that it shouldn't have been decided by the states. And that's and 
that's the core of the constitutional value of the case. Uh, should, I mean, even, even those of us who believe that Roe v. Wade should be overturned, well, what's the result of Roe v. Wade being overturned? It becomes a state's interest. It's up to each individual state to decide. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that abortion is gone. It means that the issue of abortion is for the individual states to determine. That's the constitutional aspect. That's different than the philosophical argument of can we eradicate abortion. There's only one way to eradicate abortion, and that's to recognize that no matter what we think about it politically, it is a choice, and our objective is to convince those who find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy that the correct choice is to not abort. Competing interests. You know, I like that definition, competing interests. That's almost like your secular understanding. That's like your secular, and then you have your moral interests, right? One's conscious before God as an advocate, as a priest, as a pastor. And so where the competing interests meet the moral uh, morality, that's where you have a good a good case. And I, I believe we're, we're almost there in Indiana. I know it will happen in my lifetime. I pray it happens in the lifetime of those who fought the good fight, those who've been fighting it for 51 years. Um, Life, liberty, and happiness—it's got to be in that order. I really, I think, I think it. Uh, I, I think our our best hope is that it happens through uh, proper engagement and appropriate persuasion. Uh, I don't think it happens through force. Agreed. And um, much of much of the rhetoric and debate centers around forced behavior, either forcing someone to not have an abortion or forcing someone to have an abortion or forcing the issue, making someone do something. Um, that's not what freedom is all about. I, I think uh, from my perspective, um, I'm very happy to take the time necessary to educate uh, people on life, on, on what is life, when should life be protected, um, how should life be protected. And when we come up with that rational belief system, uh, it becomes an undeniable truth. We need to get to the point where it becomes an undeniable truth that the that the entity that's within a pregnant woman is a alive and b human. So once we've determined that it is a human life, the next question is, when do we start to protect it? Well, that's easy for you and me. It's like right away, as soon as we have <laughs> acknowledged that we have a human life, a human entity. It requires and demands protection. Why? It's the least protected human entity that there is. It's, it, it, we, we protect one-year-olds. We protect nine-month-olds. We would protect an eight-month-old eight fetus. So the idea is defining the human life and when it needs to be protected. That supersedes, in my view, any type of, of attempt to create legal standards, etc. I want to get to a point where where we're able to have that conversation and, and, and present that logic that says you wouldn't kill, you wouldn't kill a two year old. You shouldn't kill a fetus. Right. And, and make that correlation. So it's logical and that people understand it. It doesn't make, it doesn't make their circumstances any better. You're still going to have people who have unwanted pregnancies and, and they're still going to have to make some tough decisions on how to go forward. And the rest of us have to step up to the plate and make sure that those tough decisions have um, uh, options that they can be helped, whether it's through adoption, whether it's through assistance, 
we can't just tell people uh, you're going to have to have that baby and then turn around and walk away right. because we're not the ones living in their shoes. Um, right. So That's the Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, pinnacle statement. I, at the end of the book, Harriet Beecher Stowe said this was her final thoughts on the matter. Um, if, quote, almost a verbatim quote, if we emancipate, will you educate? Meaning if we pull the plug on this terrible stain, who's going to fill in those gaps? Who's going to fill in all those social gaps, sustenance, education, you know, building, grounding oneself? And 40 acres and a meal didn't cut it. Well, and it so, didn't cut it, but there were, there, were, there were, you know, like anything, there were, there were plenty of people who were willing to and did step up to fill those gaps, to educate, to assist, to provide meaningful guidance. Um, but unfortunately, there were several others that chose to do everything they could to derail and uh, um, uh, create a situation that was frightening for, for years and decades to come. And, uh, and that became the prevailing viewpoint. You had those who uh, decided that segregation uh, was, the, was the answer, and then you had others who ignored it and allowed it to continue because it didn't interfere with their lifestyle. And so as bad as the stain of slavery was, the stain of post-slavery America um, is perhaps in many ways worse. Mm. Yeah, a lot of many episodes to follow, getting into the psychology and history of slavery as it progressed over the decades um, socially. We, we've covered a lot here, and we're at 90 minutes, so that's about three full podcasts and I'm so thankful to have gotten into these topics with somebody who's spent a, a career in law and family and uh, who Mr. Hill has been a lot of places. Um, and I would like to just see things like this continue, the uh, conferences and the podcasts. I'd like to see Americans read these books, read these stories. We talk about the right way, the nonviolent way, here we have it. The Tuskegee Airmen fought military segregation with nonviolent action. History.com. Go check it out. It's a rich story. We have to tell these stories. We have to teach these things in our home schools. We have to get these things back in our public schools to be taught with passion and taught with that, um, with the grit. You know, we don't just teach the what's. We teach the why's. You know. What's and why? So survival and civil rights, they are awfully misunderstood in culture. And so in, in the words of my friend Tyrone, the culture has been hoodwinked. And we've been hoodwinked into believing that our national survival and civil rights are the same exact thing. And to validate the tragic events of 2020, that would be a philosophical tragedy in our minds and hearts. That's not the same thing. 1960 and 2020 are not the same era. So as you listen to this podcast, listen to it twice. Go back and read the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Go and read the Declaration of Independence. You know, we opened with the preamble. Can you shoot that from the hip, Mr. Hill? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. For the purpose of a more 
perfect union. We'll never be perfect. But man, we can certainly try. With the life God gave us each, we have a vapor. We get to do our part. And Jason, and one thing to add in that is the very first thing that was offered in the preamble that needed to be done to preserve that more, uh, to, to make that more perfect union was establish justice. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we do what? We establish justice. Without justice, there is no union. All other events are, are inferior to the concept of American justice. Mm. Well, that is, that's powerful. It's easy to overlook those, uh, the order mm-hmm. in which our founders wrote these things. They meant something. It's easy to overlook this office here. We are sitting up here on the third floor in Elkhart, and uh, God has a purpose for everybody in this movement, everybody in this country, every ball player, every politician, every author. Uh, there's a purpose for you, and don't think that just because you won't make the NBA or you might not make the state house. You have got something to do for this cause, and you've got a life. You've got one life to live, and it's not for pleasure and entertainment. Though we love those things, there is a calling. There is a purpose for each soul, and we are all, as I put it, we are spokes in this great wheel of time, and we got to keep on rolling. we got to keep on moving because the Liberty Bell's got a crack, and I think that was kind of where this all got started. The first game, Philadelphia, and let that crack in the Liberty Bell just be an omen for every future generation that we got to fill that crack. We got to figure out our part and not go on with our lives and pretend that survival is default, that it comes naturally. That's 90 minutes. Uh, what do you think we'll talk about next time? Well, you, you, uh, you throw it up there and we'll toss it out. All right, sounds good. All right. Well, uh, we'd like to dedicate this episode to Cameron Caldwell out of Elkhart, Indiana, and we'd like to honor Shelby Westbrook and what he did when the world called upon the torchbearers of freedom. The torch was lit. The beer was flowing. The games would begin. But ironically... Germany's future enemies would parade cheerfully out in the open in the grand exordium of Olympic ceremony. The United States, England, and France, all of them, even the French, would somehow mistake the Olympic salute for the Nazi salute to the applause of the German multitude. But the sport was just the facade of a deeper and darker agenda. A glorious venue, charming and magnificent to all the world athletes who would attend, overseen by the omnipotent and ever so graceful former Chancellor, Adolf Hitler. It was the modern-day Colosseum, but the athletes were not ripped to shreds for winning. The lions would have to wait in their cages for their kill. Why? Because Jesse Owens would dominate. 
Though a six-year marathon of bloodshed was on the horizon, millions of jaded sports enthusiasts, citizens, and world leaders would watch the Berlin Olympics. They would watch the best. They would see them prevail. All the while, their beloved homelands were simultaneously dangling from the precipice.